Welcome to the place where people of faith find real answers. We believe women deserve more than just religious band-aids for their most difficult and destructive relationships. And now for today's episode of Relationship Truth Unfiltered. Hello, I'm Julie Sedanko. I'm here with Leslie Vernick. On today's podcast, we're going to talk about finding wholeness after emotional abuse. Before we begin, though, Leslie, I'd like to ask you to define emotional abuse for our audience. Is it teasing or name calling among siblings? Is it saying something that hurts another person's feelings or maybe being bullied at school? How do you define emotional abuse? You know, that's a really good question. And I don't know that there is a one-liner that would define emotional abuse because people certainly can hurt our feelings through lots of means of just rejection or they don't want to play with us or they don't want to be our best friends. I wouldn't call that emotional abuse. I would call that the normal wounds of childhood um, in relationships. But when someone intentionally, either in a purposeful way or a neglectful way, creates a situation where you are demeaned, diminished, devalued, dismissed as a person, that your, your value and your worth is either verbally cut down or defined as you're stupid, you're worthless, I don't know why I had you, you don't deserve to be here, I hate you, you're ugly, those kind of name calling attacks on one's very personhood. Or emotional abuse can come in in a kind of a backwards kind of way of just, you know, who do you think you are? You think you're too important, but you're not. I don't know why I had you, you know, kind of they're not direct attacks per se, but they're still making someone feel like they're, or they're actually saying, they're not making someone feel, they're actually saying, you aren't that important to me. And it may not even be all that much in words. It might be in actions. Like emotional abuse can be neglect. You know, I don't talk to you much at all. I don't value you enough to have a conversation with you. I don't care enough about you to feed you properly or make sure you get to school or take care of you medically or all kinds of abuse can be neglectful and impact someone physically, emotionally, spiritually, and mentally. So that emotional abuse can can run the gamut, but basically it's a devaluing by one person toward another that you aren't as good as, as important as, worth as much as I am. And therefore you are usable or discardable as an object versus a person to care about. And there's a consistency to it as well, isn't there? Because I know if the driver in front of me could hear, I am very guilty of emotionally abusing them. Um, but this is something that it's a regular habit happening in life. Is that correct? Well, you know, there are always going to be people who say ugly things to us. People said ugly things to Jesus. You might say ugly things to the driver. Um, you know, in the book of Nehemiah, for example, in the Bible, they said ugly things about Nehemiah. Um, yes, those things hurt and they're very unpleasant. Um, if somebody yelled at me for driving too slow, I wouldn't like it. But it's different when you're in a relationship with someone, when you're best friends with someone, when you're the child of someone, when you're the parent of someone, when you're the spouse of someone, right. when you're in a relationship and that verbal vomit comes at you pretty regularly, it's much more harmful because the relationship itself implies that 
I thought you cared about me. I thought you wanted to be in a relationship with me. I thought we were friends. I thought it was safe. I thought we could trust each other. And now basically by the way that you're talking to me, you're talking about me. You're telling me I'm not worth it. I'm garbage. I'm not important. I'm stupid. I don't mean anything. And those kind of wounds can be really damaging. Would you say that the closer a relationship is designed to be, the greater the impact of emotional abuse on the person? Yeah, I do. And I think especially between a husband and wife and parent and child, that relationship is intrinsically designed by God to be the safest, most trusting relationship there is. And so when you don't feel safe with someone emotionally because they're attacking you and they're um, targeting your weak spots or devaluing your personhood or treating you like trash. Again, that's one thing if your you know, teacher might do it or your neighbor might do it or a stranger might do it. But when your own parent does it or your own child does it to you or your own husband or wife does it to you, that impact on, oh my gosh, the betrayal and the pain of that is great. And even there's a really great example in Psalm 55 where David was betrayed and hurt by, and he said, it, it wasn't a, a stranger who did this to me. It was you, my companion, my close friend. And that's what made the impact so painful. Wow. It seems like our secular culture has made more progress in accepting the reality of emotional abuse, while the church seems to have been stuck for decades, really, on this topic. Would you agree with that? And if you do, why do you think religious leaders are reluctant to deal with emotional abuse? I don't know that they would completely deny it these days, although I have been around leaders in the past who would say things like, there is no such thing as emotional abuse in the Bible. And if you look in the concordance of any Bible for the words emotional abuse, you won't find them. But you will see plenty of things in the Bible that talk about the way we talk to people, our speech, the way we converse and say this and don't say this and do say this and don't say that. Or life and death is in the power of the tongue. Um, the Bible is really clear that reckless words pierce like a sword. Colossians tells us to be careful with our speech. Let no corrupt speech come out of your mouth. And James tells us out of one side of our mouth, we're praising and loving God. And on the other side of our mouth, we're cursing our neighbor. This should not be the mark of a Christian. So the Bible is really clear that the impact of our words is powerful. Um, I think the reason the churches have been reluctant to validate that, because then what? The relationship that's been harmed by that usually is marriage. And churches have such a high view of the sanctity of marriage that they're not exactly sure what to do with it if they actually call it abuse. The same level as if her husband punched her or she stabbed him. Although the Bible says that words have that kind of power, I think church leaders, because of their high view for the sanctity of marriage, have been reluctant to validate that as the same level of harm that might come if she did stab him or he did punch her. Although the Bible says that it's, it's painful and it's just as real as physical wounds, probably even more so because physical wounds can heal and emotional abuse hits our soul and our spirit in very deep ways. Leslie, I know you've shared before about the abuse that you unfortunately suffered as a child, both physically and emotionally. Can you give our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with your story some examples of what you endured? And are there any specific incidents that stand out to your mind when it comes to emotional abuse? You know, from an adult looking down now, um, you know, I have much more compassion and empathy on where my mother was at the time. You know, she was a single mom 
in the 60s, uh, when single moms were rare, there were any other kids in their, my classroom who were divorced. So that immediately made you feel like you were an oddball and that you stuck out like a sore thumb. Um, she worked two jobs, one job during the week as a secretary and the weekend she worked at the Playboy Club as a waitress. So I'm sure she was exhausted. She was trying as hard as she could. She had a horrible childhood herself, which we had no idea. We were just kids. So she drank a lot. She also had some mental health issues and she just did not know how to control her emotions. And so if I would do something she didn't like, most of the time she just ignored me. I was just talking to my dad about this because uh, he was visiting and, you know, I don't ever, ever remember my mother reading a story, hugging, kissing, wow. saying she loved me. I mean, I was talking to my brother or sister about that and they don't remember it either. So I wasn't the only one. So she was just generally neglectful that way, but she was also very uh, harsh and cruel to me. So she would say ugly things like, you know, I wish you were never born and you have no sparkle to your eyes and, you know, you're stupid and I can't believe you did that. And then she was also physically abusive. So in that environment, it was really scary to be around her. She was a scary woman, especially yeah. when she was drinking and she was on her manic episode for her bipolar. And as little kids, you didn't really understand any of that then. I understand more of that now. And again, I have a lot of compassion but you can have compassion on your abuser, but the impact that they cause, just like if someone was a drunk driver, even if someone you know, had a heart attack at the wheel and they crashed into your car and killed your kids, I mean, you might have compassion on that person, but the impact on you right. is still very real and you still have your own healing journey to take. Um, and so my relationship with my mother was severed for many, many years after my dad finally got custody of us. How did that impact you? Maybe the way you saw yourself as a kid, as an adult, you know, did it impact the way you saw authority figures, how you went into marriage and motherhood yourself? I mean, you didn't know how to be a mother because you never really had a good example yourself. How did that impact you? It terrified me. Um, I remember reading lots of books on parenting. I did have a stepmom when I was 14. I went to go live with my dad because my father finally got custody of us from the courts because my mother's behavior and although I didn't appreciate her at the time because I was 14 and most people who are 14, even with a real mom, biological mom, are right. off doing other things. They're not looking at a relationship with their mother at that point. But um, I did learn some about what a good mother looks like by watching her with her children. Uh, she had three biological children as well as bringing us into the household. Um, and I think that it was terrifying for me to be a mother. I was the, the, the scariest thing was, am I going to be a mom like my mom? You know, am I going to yeah. turn out to lose my temper or not be able to handle things? And, and so, you know, I had to do some work. I had to do a lot of reading. I had one abusive incident with my child when he was two. I talk about this in one of my books where I yanked him to his feet and he was throwing a fit in the dressing room in a store. And I yanked him to his feet and told him to stop it. And, you know, shook his arm and I accidentally pulled his elbow out of his socket um, he had a real loose joint there. It was called nurseman's elbow, but it totally terrified me that I was going to turn out like my mom and took him to the hospital, admitted to the doctor what I did. The doctor said it wasn't, it happens, put the elbow back in, showed me how to do it because he said it'll happen again. But it woke me up to me having to do my own work so that yeah. I did not handle my upset feelings in the same way my mother handled hers and that I had to be able to manage them so that I could parent in the way that I wanted to and not turn into someone that she was. I know you talk a lot now in your ministry about telling yourself the truth and everything, but what kinds of things before you did all this work, were you telling yourself about who you were? 
because of your emotional abuse? Yeah. You know, I think, I don't know if I can even remember what I would tell myself because I wasn't conscious of paying attention to that. that Oh, that's true. Yeah. But um, I think I, you know, I didn't feel good about myself. I will say that I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel positive. I didn't feel smart. I didn't feel strong. When I went to live with my dad, I didn't know how to do algebra. I didn't even know how to do basic calculations because in eighth grade, because of my mother's behavior, I had figured out a workaround that if I stayed home from school and cleaned the house while she was at work, then she would come home from work in a better mood and I could go out with my friends. So that if I went to school and she came home in a bad mood, then it was an awful night. So I didn't remember a whole lot of eighth grade, any kind of content. The last grade I remember learning anything in was sixth grade. Um, So when I went to high school with my dad, all of a sudden it was like, oh my gosh, you know, I don't know how to do any of this stuff and I actually have to do it. And I actually have to go to school every day. I can't get out of it this way. So I didn't feel smart. I didn't feel capable. I didn't feel pretty. I didn't feel like I was a very attractive, lovable kid. I wasn't a popular kid in high school. I certainly wasn't in elementary school. Now I began to heal as I began to do my work, not consciously doing my work, but unconsciously as I accepted Christ as my savior and as the Lord started to heal me and my church saw some gifts of leadership in me that I would have never seen. And my youth pastor took me under his wing and shepherded me. And I was his counselee in his master's of divinity counseling class that he had to practice in someone. And so I was the one, I was his babysitter. And so it was just a really good time of healing. And I love that the church for me was such a healing community, that my youth group was healing. We had a a lady who was a pioneer girl. And that's what we, my father made me go to church. So I had to go to church. I had to go to youth group and I had to go to pioneer girls, which I resisted. And I was so angry, but it was so good because I began to see women who valued me and women who saw the good in me and women who could nurture me and help me grow into the person that I was designed to become. Even if my mother couldn't see it, there were other mothers that God put in my life, in my church. Wow. That's the power of the church, isn't it? Amen. Wow. Do you feel like your emotional abuse as a child impacted your choice of profession and the direction of your life ultimately? I think it did. I don't think God wastes our suffering. You know, when Joseph said in Genesis, you meant it for evil, but God is going to use it for good. Um, I do believe that it made me much more sensitive and much more compassionate, much more alert to um, children who might be vulnerable to abuse. I remember in our first church that we went to after we got married, the pastor asked the audience was a small church, a little country church, maybe 200 people max, but there was a boys brigade sleepover that night and he, or not that night, but that weekend. And he said, we don't have enough men to chaperone. Anybody want to volunteer? And so a couple of men in the audience raised their hands. And by then I had graduated. I had my master's degree in social work. I was working in a hospital and I went up to my pastor afterwards. And I said, <laughs> I said these men that you just asked to help in the sleepover do you know them like what are they screened how do you know they're not pedophiles well he looked at me like I was crazy and he said Leslie we're Christians here we don't operate like the world operates and I'm thinking oh my gosh well this was 1977 this is a long time ago so churches have changed although they're still not doing a good job because no. scandal after scandal after scandal, but it did make me more sensitive. It did make me more alert. It made me more aware. Um, I've worked in child abuse and now domestic violence for my entire career. And I think there was a reason for it because I knew what it felt like and I knew what it looked like. And I knew 
what worked in healing and what didn't work in healing because I not only learned it professionally, I learned it personally. That story was crazy through me. Um, you're obviously a very successful counselor, author, and speaker, meaning you've been able to find wholeness after emotional abuse. But finding wholeness didn't mean getting the mother-daughter relationship you wanted. Can you talk a little bit about that journey? When I, you know, my mom lost custody of us and she visited us a few times, but sort of lost interest, moved to Florida, got remarried. And um, it was really difficult because I didn't know how to have a relationship with my mother. So here I'm a brand new Christian and I'm reading the Bible verses and I'm supposed to forgive and I'm supposed to honor my parents and, you know, I'm supposed to not keep a record of wrongs. And so I'm trying to do this like, okay, how do we reconcile? How do I have this relationship with my mother? Um, but every time I would try to see her, or we would get together. It was the same. I mean, she hadn't changed. I had changed, but she hadn't changed. And I just didn't quite know how to navigate that, especially after I went to college and got my graduate degrees and I had a little bit more wherewithal. I kind of finally understood what was wrong with her. Like I saw she was an alcoholic. I saw that she had bipolar. I saw some other things going on. I could have names for it, but just because I could diagnose her didn't mean I could influence her to get any help or change. Right. And so it was really tricky because here I am moving into counseling and working with abused victims. And, you know, and I still don't know how to have a conversation with my mother because every time we tried or every time I tried, um, she would she would bark back and she would bite back. And sometimes in my attempt to get stronger and my attempt to set boundaries and my attempt to try to get some healing, I'd throw a few barks back myself and I'd start attacking and accusing too and blaming and all of that. And I thought, this isn't how I should be. This isn't how I want to show up. But I didn't want to show up as, yes, mom, anything you need, it's okay. You could just treat me like a, you know, awful and I can still just keep bouncing back. I did, I intuitively, I knew that wasn't a healthy response, even though that was the best response I got from the church is that you just have to suffer for Jesus and forbear and love your mother and just forgive and just forgive, forget. And I could forgive and do that as long as I didn't have to see her. But if I saw her and then she kept doing it again, then I'd have to do all of this work all over again. I thought, why am I putting myself through this? Is this what God is asking me to do? So it was, it wasn't just a personal, a professional journey that I took and how to deal with this biblically, but it was a personal journey of, wait a minute, is that really what the Bible is asking of me? Is this really my job to hold up this relationship when she is taking an ax to the relationship every single time that I see her and breaking my trust and my safety? That can be as hard or maybe even harder than the abuse when the person who's hurting you doesn't care to get enough help. How can a person find wholeness if the other person isn't willing to do their part? I think this is crucial. So if there's any part of the podcast, if you're listening to this, that you need to hear if you're where I've been, is don't get lost in the weeds. And the weeds are trying to get the other person to change. Now, I'm not saying that I never talked to my mother, I never tried to get her to change, but every time I did, just more abuse came back at me or she just cut me off for a couple of years. I didn't see or speak to my mom for 15 years. So am I gonna just wait till she does her work or am I gonna say whether or not she does her work, whether or not she and I ever reconcile in a true way, I have some healing to do. And as long as I'm focused on trying to get her to change so that I feel better or trying to get her to change so I don't get hurt by her anymore, 
I'm helpless because I don't have any power to do that. And so that was a detour that I took that I got lost in the weeds. Now that I'm a counselor, now that I know what's wrong with you, mom, I can help you. I can, you know, I tell you where to go and take your medicine and do all that stuff. And she absolutely had no interest and refused to do it. And so that was a detour for me of a few years where I really got lost in the weeds of trying to get her to get it, to change. The second detour that I tried to get is I tried to get her to say she was sorry. Like I remember writing her a long letter, you know, I prayed about it and, you know, wrote and I said, mom, you know, you've got two grandchildren now. They're scared of you. I'm scared of you. You know, this is what you've done. And all we want is for you to recognize that. I didn't quite say it that way, but you know, we, I just wanted her to say, you're right, Leslie. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to hurt you. I mean, don't we all just like, I, yeah. I need that in order for me to get better. I need you to recognize what you've done to harm me. Well, and it doesn't me. seem like too much to ask either. I it mean, after what you went ask. through. Yeah, it's not, it's not too much to ask. The problem was I wasn't going to get it. Right. You know, when I wrote my mom that letter, she wrote me a awful, awful abusive letter back. And, wow. you know, and I thought, wow, this was stupid because she didn't change at all. And she didn't give me what I wanted. Not only that, but she heaped more blame and accusation on me. And so I had a, I had a decision to make at that point. My question is, am I going to stay hostage to her? Am I going to stay hostage emotionally to needing with a capital N-E-E-D? I need her to apologize in order for me to be okay. I need her to change in order for me to be okay. I need her to love me in order for me to be okay. Well, if I'm going to be in that place, I am never going to be okay. I am never going to be whole because I have absolutely no control over that. And so far, she has no interest in doing any of those for me. And so it was almost like this God wake up call where he said, I have given you, Leslie, everything you need in Second Peter 1 for life and for godliness. You do not need that from your mother in order for you to get whole. Let it go. And it was such a like it was such a jolt to my spiritual and emotional life. Like, oh, like I can move on and heal even if our relationship never does. I can get healthy. I can grow. I can be strong even if she chooses not to. My well-being is no longer dependent on what she does or doesn't do. And that was huge. It was a huge turning point in my healing. Wow, that's so good. So what does doing your own healing work actually look like? How can someone practically find wholeness after being the victim of emotional abuse? I think it starts with taking responsibility for yourself that you, you have your work to do. And this is so hard for so many people to understand because they equate that with taking blame. Like, okay, I'm responsible for how she treated me. I wasn't responsible for how she treated me. She was 100% responsible for how she treated me. Even if I was a bad kid, she was still the adult and she was 100% responsible for how she treated me as the child to the mom. However, if I'm broken because she treated me in a wrong way, I am 100% responsible for my healing. The same as if I got hit by a hit and run. I'm not responsible for that person crashing into my car and you know, breaking my leg and arm, I'm not responsible for that. I'm not to blame for that, but I am responsible to go to the doctor and the hospital and fix my car and get my arm healed and my leg healed if I want to walk again and use my arm. 
I know you've told the story even of how your mother, didn't she break one of your teeth or something? Yeah. She knocked out my two front teeth in a, in a moment of rage. And so I always felt, you know, ugly, of course, when you're a kid, there's always that insecure anyway. But when you have broken teeth in the front and one of them is black because it's died, and then you wow. go to the dentist and they put two silver caps on your teeth, you don't smile very often. And so you start to look like every smile is closed mouth and you don't talk, you know, and so people start to think you're a little weird. And my mother uh, was weird. And so we were a little weird. She'd cut my hair when she'd been drinking. So my pictures aren't the cutest. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Leslie. Look at. So my point is though, I've always been self-conscious about my teeth because they were broken. They were, I never got dental care and, and, you know, I had these silver caps. And so when I got to be an adult, I invested in getting my teeth fixed. You know, I had to go to a cosmetic dentist and I had to pay a lot of money. I didn't have dental insurance. I wanted to have my teeth look good. It wasn't my mother's responsibility. And even if she had offered, it would have been nice if she did, but she didn't. So if I want my teeth to be fixed, to look normal, I'm going to have to do it, right? I'm going to have to do that. So the yeah. same thing with your inner work, if there's damage, because someone has been emotionally abusive to you, damage to your self-esteem, damage to your confidence, damage to your the way that you think about yourself or the way that you think about others, damage to your spiritual life, all that can be happening when someone's emotionally abusive to you. Then who's responsible to heal you? The abuser isn't, you are. And I think once you accept that, it seems so unfair. Like, why should I have to do this? She did this to me. And you don't have to do it. But if you want to get better, just like if someone raped you, you know, if you're broken because and you're scared to go out because someone raped you, you got to do some work in order for you to get healthy again, in order for you to get whole again, in order for you to live your life again and stop living in fear. And so I think this is the hardest thing for our culture because some of us are indeed true victims. But even when you are a true victim of someone who's been in your life as a friend or a parent or just a victim of a stranger, and the impact to you is on you and how you deal with that. Do you just stay stuck because they did this to me? Or do you say, yes, they did this to me. And now what am I going to do about it? Tell me what those steps are. What, what do you do? You know, cause I know people are listening and they're just identifying so strongly with this and saying, okay, Leslie, just tell me what to do. Cause I think I I'm ready. I want to get hold. Yeah. So I would say a couple of things. <clears throat> First of all, self-stewardship or taking care of you, just like if you got hit by a car and you had to go to intensive care and you had to go to physical therapy so that you would heal, even though it wasn't your fault that you got hit by a car, you still have to do the work, right? So self-care and self-stewardship is not selfish. I think that's a mindset for Christian women like, oh, that would be selfish if I took money and paid for counseling or if I took time and journaled and you know, did my inner work because I've got three kids and they need, well, if you were in intensive care and you had three kids, you would do your work so that you could come back and be whole and take care of your kids in a good way. And so I don't, I just want to take away the guilt trip that the Bible tells us, for example, above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. Well, my heart wasn't guarded. My heart was open and kept being smashed. I didn't know how to guard my heart, but the Bible tells me above all else, guard your heart. So how do you do that? And who does that if you don't? That's called self-stewardship. Or if we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, well, who does that if I don't do that? So here was an example of where my healing began, besides my teeth, which was later, actually. 
So my mother was visiting from uh, Florida and Chicago, and there was a particularly very ugly incident where uh, she had threatened to kill me. And I was sitting on my, uh, I don't, can't remember whose stoop. I was adult. I was already married. So I was sitting on the stoop of this house that either she was renting or she was living. I don't know where she was staying. I can't remember that part. But I was just crying my eyes out to the Lord, waiting for my husband to pick me up. And I was sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And I said, Lord, why can't she love me? Right? What's wrong with me that she can't love me? And the Lord said, you're asking the wrong question. This isn't about her. She's broken. The question is, why don't you believe me, Leslie? I'm telling you who you are. You are a valuable, worthwhile, beautiful human being that I've created in my image. Who are you going to listen to? Whose voice is going to be the truth for you? Hmm. That was a very like, I mean, a really moment between me and God, where it's like, choose you this day, who you are, right? Wow. But no one can make that choice for me, but me. God right. couldn't just downpour in my head the truth and I'm just going to all of a sudden walk in it, right? I had to decide because I had two voices, one saying one thing, one saying another. And whose was I going to listen to? And I think this is the issue with emotional abuse is you've got so much garbage in your head. And maybe even in emotional abuse, you start abusing your own self. Like, oh, I'm so stupid. And why did I do that? And nobody likes me. And I'm just a loser. We start actually repeating the abuse to ourselves. Wow. That's true. You know, and God is saying, you've got to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, even thoughts that you think are true. Like, I can't do that. I'm no good. I'm too stupid to learn how to do that. That's not true. God's saying, that's not true, Leslie. So who are you going to believe? Are you going to believe your own sense of things? This talks about this in Proverbs 3. It says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding and all your ways acknowledge me and I will make your path straight. But who does that for you if you don't do it? So that's the first part of healing is making some real commitments to stewarding. What's going in my mind? What am I believing? How am I thinking? Am I taking those thoughts captive and showing them to the Lord? Lord, this is what I think about myself. I tell myself this, is this true? Mm. I read in your word that I am fearfully and wonderfully made. I don't feel that. So which is true? If I don't feel it, does that make it not true? Right? And these are the, the internal muscles that we have to develop as a Christian for all of us, whether you've been emotionally abused or not, we struggle with unbelief and doubt. God tells us we do. So even if you've been raised by a wonderful family, you might have to change your thoughts in different ways. Like you might think, I'm so special. Everybody should bow to me. <laughs> you know? mm -hmm. And then you read God's word and it says, you're not that special, right? Wow. You're right. not important than anybody else. You know, reorient your thinking. So a narcissist might have to do some work as well, even though they don't think they have to. They think they're God. They're not. And so all of us have work to do, whether we've been wounded or whether we've been puffed up. We have work to do to align ourselves with who God says we are and our purpose. And if we don't do that work, then we're going to miss out on that life that he says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it to the fullest. And we are going to continue to live in darkness and doubt and fear and insecurity, whether you've been emotionally abused or not. Just those who have been emotionally abused find it a little harder journey to come out of that pit. Wow. So our, our definitions need to align 
with the definitions that God has about ourselves. Yeah. And even if you don't feel it, even right. if you don't feel it. And I think this is our culture is very oriented around feelings. And when you've been wounded, you've got a lot of feelings and you know, you've got a lot of hurt, a lot of anger, all those kind of things. But I think there's a really good story in, in Judges chapter six about Gideon. Gideon was a man who lived in fear uh, a lot and he doubt, he didn't trust God. And when God said to Gideon, Gideon, this is who you are. You're a mighty warrior. I created you to be a mighty warrior. And Gideon's, Gideon's arguing with God, who me? I'm not a mighty warrior. When God told me to write a book, I'm like, are you kidding me, God? I didn't go for my PhD because I can't write. So I sort of feel like Gideon in that moment, you know? Like, yeah. no, you've got the wrong person. And so when God called Gideon, he said, this is who you are, Gideon. I know who you are. I see who you were made to be. I just planted some sunflowers outside in a little pot. And these are like two little green shoots. They're meant to be sunflowers. Hmm. Right now, they don't look like sunflowers. They just look like little green beans, but they will grow into these gigantic, beautiful sunflowers if they continue to grow and be healthy. So Gideon said, God says to Gideon, I'm calling you to be a mighty warrior. That's who you are, right? And Gideon goes, I don't feel like it. I'm just a little farmer from the least of the tribe of Benjamin. And God says, I know who I made you to be. So go in the strength that you have and live out who I called you to be as, as imperfectly as you do it. And the more Gideon did that, the more he became what God called him to be. So this is where we have to kind of decide, am I going to believe my feelings? I'm worthless. I can't. I'm no good. I'm stupid. Are we going to believe those thoughts and those feelings? Or are we going to say, God, I have these thoughts and feelings. I'm not going into denial. Help me to renew my mind with your word, to believe you are telling me the truth and to walk in faith and not in fear. And I think that's the beginning of healing. Leslie, that was so good. And there was so much there. Could you maybe summarize that in a few steps? I love that you asked that, Julie, because I am very practical and I always want to know the how-tos. And so I think the first step is just to recognize where you are. You know, if you're lost, you can't even find your way out of the mall until you go to that map and it says you are here. Right? Right. And then once you know you are here, and then the next step is, well, where do I want to go? right? I want to go here. So now you've got two spots. Here's where I am. I feel wounded. I feel lost. I feel, you know, all the damage of this emotional abuse. I want to go to wholeness. So then what are the steps to get there? So I would think the first step is to just kind of do what I've just done is re-educate yourself on what is healthy and what is whole, who's responsible for that and who's not responsible for that. Because oftentimes we grow up in an, an abusive home and we lose confidence or we never had any confidence in our own abilities and our own thoughts and the ways that we think and our own intuitions. Um, and so just learning all of that about yourself and learning how to do that and how to manage and how to identify even, I feel angry versus I feel hurt or I feel anxious. Those are different mm. feelings, but if we don't have the words to articulate that, then we don't know how to get from here to here because there's different remedies for anxiety than anger. Right. Yeah. If we don't appropriately label those things and understand them, it's hard to get from I'm lost in anger to I'm lost in anxiety. What's the path out of that place might be a little different. So beginning to educate yourself is really important. The second thing is to really identify and take responsibility for your problem rather than your abuser's problem. Now, my problem would have been much easier and my path 
would have been much easier if only my mom would have apologized, if only she would have done some work, if only she would have wanted to reconcile our relationship, but she didn't want to. So right. here's the question that I want you to ask yourself. Where, first, one, first question is, I'm lost, where am I? And where do I want to go? So here I am, here's where I want to go. Re-educate yourself about those things. The second thing is, what is my problem with their problem? Let's say your husband drinks too much and he's verbally abusive. What's my problem with his problem? I feel scared of him. I don't want to drive with him. I don't like the example he is to my kids. Okay, what do you want to do about your problem? You can't fix his drinking problem, but now you've identified three problems that you have that you can begin to work on. Or let's say that your problem is your husband's financially irresponsible and you don't know where any of the money is. What's my problem with his problem? My problem is I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable financially. I'm not safe financially. I don't know what taxes we owe. I don't even know how to get into the bank accounts. What do I need to do about my problem? Wow. He's not wow. going to change. So really asking yourself, what is my problem with their problem? Because that identifies what you have to work on. You can't work on their problem. The only problem you can work on is your problem with their problem. So with my mom, what is my problem with her problem? My problem is she won't love me. My problem is I'm angry that she won't love me. My problem is I feel like she owes me an apology. My problem is I don't like that she won't get help. What am I gonna do about my problem? Am I gonna let that go? Am I gonna trust God for my well-being if my mom never changes? Am I gonna take responsibility for forgiving her and doing my own work? Whether or not we ever have a relationship again, I don't know. But I don't want to stay bitter. I don't want to stay resentful. I don't want to stay angry. Those are my problems with her problem. She won't change. Right? Her problem is she won't change. My problem with her problem is I am so angry. I am so bitter that she won't change. That I'm wrecking my life now. I'm wrecking mm. my life. She wrecked my childhood. Now I'm wrecking my life because I'm stuck in being mad that her problem isn't fixable. Instead of saying, what's my problem with her problem? And so that gave me the work to do. I've got to work on forgiving her. I've got to work on letting go of any expectations of her. I've got to learn on building my own life without my mother and learning to be happy without a mother who loves you and still seeing myself as a lovable, worthwhile human being. That's a ton of work I had to work on. Yeah. It had nothing to do with my mother. Wow. And that also, it's like, I, I think so many people feel such a sense of powerlessness mm -hmm. because of that person's problem. But what you just said, it's like, oh no, I do have choices. I do have some power. I, I can do something even if mm -hmm. that and problem doesn't go. It might be a short-term thing like, oh, we're going to a party and I'm afraid my husband's going to drink too much. What's his problem? He drinks too much. What's my problem? I don't want to drive home with him if he drank too much. What am I going to do with my problem with his problem? Well, I'm going to get an Uber and make sure that's on my app, or I'm going to take the car keys to make sure I drive home. Whatever you're going to do with your problem with his problem, because you can't say to him, oh, I'm not going to let you drink too much. You're not powerful enough. Right. To do that, right. But you can say, but my problem with his problem is I don't want to get in a car accident on the way home. I don't want to feel scared. I don't want to be nagging him on the way home. I'm going to have to take care of me, even if it means driving separately. I actually got in the car with a friend and I realized after we were driving that she had been drinking. And so we went out and I tried a million different ways to get her to give me the keys for the ride back home. And she wouldn't. And I finally just had to confront her and say, I'm 
going to have to call the police because I can't let you drive because she was willing to just leave me there on the side of the road, but I couldn't let her drive and hurt someone else. And I did. I had to call the police on my own friend. And she was twice the legal limit. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you, she gave me the key. (laughs) That's being strong enough and capable enough to know my problem is not only do I feel unsafe, but I will feel horrible about myself if I just let her drive home alone and she kills someone, she kills herself. Oh, yeah. My problem is I can't do that. Yeah. And I think the other thing is to really recognize some of the lies that we believe. We don't even recognize what lies we do believe. I'll I'll just share a story and I've shared this before, but when I was in college, I didn't go for my dissertation in social work because I believed I couldn't write. I couldn't write well enough to get a PhD and write a dissertation. True belief. I honestly believe that was the truth. Nobody ever like wrote on my term papers. You're such a good writer. You know, so I never got any affirmation for my writing and I never thought of myself as a writer, never desired to be a writer, but immediately had this belief that I can't write. And so 20 years later, when I'm 40, God's calling me to write a book. And I'm like, don't you remember when I was 20? I told you I can't write, right? (laughs) (laughs) And God's saying, but that was never true. You can write, you know? And so we have these limiting beliefs about ourselves, about God, about life, that God may want to be renewing our mind with the truth all of our life. He does that. But we have some beliefs like I'm too stupid or I'm too weak or I'm not strong enough or I can't. I call can't the four letter word that we say most often to ourselves when really we can. We just are being lazy or we're not being um, resourceful or we're not asking for help. We can do a whole lot more than we think we can. But when we tell ourselves we can't, that's the end of the story. We don't. We don't. And so it's really important that that we begin to identify those beliefs. And I don't think we can do that, Julie, all by ourselves. And that's why, you know, in our group in Conquer and in our support groups we offer, uh, isolation is a terrible thing. And I don't think we can heal all by ourselves. I think I began to heal when I began to find a church community, when I was involved with my youth pastor and his family, when I had friends who began to affirm me in different ways, when I began to have professors who did tell me I was smart and I was capable, even though I was way behind. And so I think this is important for us to understand that God has designed us to, we've been broken in relationships and that God has designed us to be healed in relationships, our relationship with him first, but also in practicing these skills and our relationships with one another. And so don't isolate, don't do this work all by yourself. This isn't your fastest track to healing. Get some help, get some support, get yourself involved in a group um, so that you can begin to grow faster. One of my favorite authors is C.S. Lewis. I just think he's such a wise man and so- This real and authentic. And I love where he said this. He says, you can't go back and change the beginning, but you can start where you are and change the ending. And that would be what I would encourage those who are listening to this. Do not let what happened to you, like Joseph, he was abused by his brothers. He was abused by Potiphar, but that didn't change his ending. And so you can't change what other people do to you, but you can decide what you are going to do with what they did to you. And I hope you don't just let it ruin you because that is Satan's intent, just like it was with Joseph, just like it was with Esther. And it didn't ruin her. And it didn't ruin Abigail. And it didn't ruin Ruth. And it didn't ruin Mary. They pressed on to become all of what God called them to be. And that's part of, taking the lemons of life and making lemonade, taking the brokenness and giving it to God and creating wholeness. 
and life. Leslie, it's just powerful to sit with you, talk with you, listen to you, and realizing what you came from. It is such a testimony that you can find wholeness after emotional abuse and that God can use your life to impact the lives of others. Would you pray for our listeners today that they would be able to do the same? I would be honored. Lord, we just come before you as wounded people. We're hurting. We've been hurt by others. You know what that feels like. It says that you are our faithful high priest who is not unacquainted with our sufferings and our weaknesses. Lord, you desire for us to be whole. You desire for us to be healthy and strong. And Lord, sin is rampant and sin destroys and sin lies to us and sin confuses us. And Father, it is so hard with all of the different voices coming at us from the world, the flesh, the devil. It's hard to sit still and know that you are God, to be quiet and hear the truth that sets us free. So Father, I pray for anyone here who's been wounded deeply by the thoughtless, cruel words of another, that their spirit has been crushed because they thought that someone cared and they didn't. And Lord, that you would just breathe new life into their spirit and their soul, that you would affirm that they are indeed fearfully and wonderfully made and that they have work to do to grow into who they are, to heal the broken parts so that they can become whole. Father, I just pray that they would be willing to do that work and that they would be excited that this is something they can do. They can't fix the other person, but they can work on healing themselves and that they would be committed to doing that and finding the support and the resources, whether it's a local church or a counselor or some other group that they would find that would support this journey with them. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to Relationship Truth Unfiltered. We would like to invite you to a free private webinar on September 29th. Leslie will talk about how long you should wait for a destructive spouse to change and how will you know if his changes are real. Go to leslievernick.com forward slash webinar to sign up. Until next week, may God bless your mind, your heart, and your home.